Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend. Welcome to the show that's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. Got a big show for you today. We're back, and we're going to have some good fun today. So, early on the show, first up, before I do too much more, I'm going to give you some advice on how to catch and target, I guess scrap, reverse that, target and catch early season brook trout. Where do you go? How do you catch them? Best methods. And we're talking big brook trout. Then, the crappie hippie is back, and he's been producing like crazy, and we just love him. Uh, he's really finding his voice here on the podcast, and we can't say enough good things about the crappie hippie, but he's with us, and he is bringing us a story about microfishing with an interview with Isaac's Fishing Corner from Instagram, a microfishing influencer, so that's coming up. And after that, Doc Martin, our chief science correspondent, is with us, and she is going to interview. She's been doing this crazy. She's been all month in November. She's been interviewing people who are are science work, people working in the field, real scientists. And so she's bringing us an interview with Dr. Mickey Tobler, who's a fish biologist from Kansas State, uh, and we're going to learn about his research on how fish adapt to their environment, and, and with a real big focus on extreme environments. So it's really going to be some great stuff, all coming up on today's Fish Nerds podcast. Welcome to the show. All right, so first up, I think, I think I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to look at a little segment here on how to catch early season brook trout. It's December here in New Hampshire. It's like today's actually the 13th when I'm recording. And the lakes are just starting to freeze. And one of the cool things about brook trout in the, in the winter, in early winter, is when the lakes first start freezing, and, and, they, and New Hampshire, they stock it late anyway, but they, so they stock all these, all these trout in the lakes, the fish start cruising around in shallow water looking for food. And what they do is they crowd small fish like uh, minnows into the shallows in the corners of the, under the ice and they gorge themselves on them. And so the way to catch them, and the great thing about early ice is, first of all, it's not safe ice. You're fishing on two to three inches of ice, really thin ice, but you're only fishing in water that's about a foot deep. And a foot's about the right depth. So if you fall through, what you do, you, you just get your feet wet and you step back on the ice and keep fishing. And I just love it this time of year. So here's, the, here's our technique. Here's the Fish Nerds official technique for catching early ice brook trout. So you find your shallow water, you find your, your sandy bottom is where we're at. The spots are just about a foot deep and you drill a whole bunch of holes. We usually drill like 10 or 15 holes. And then you, you get a jig. And we like you to use hot pink. Um, that's our favorite. Uh, Vinny um, has been tying his own jigs lately. The crappie hippie made me a uh, mop fly jig um, to try. And our friends are using whatever. But we're usually going pink and red, that sort of color. And you drop it down the hole and you jig. You just bounce it up and down the bottom. And... You watch, and the fish come in like dogs. You see them kind of cruising under the ice, and they come. You get like six or eight of them all at one time, piling up under your hole. And if you can play keep away with them, you get to, you get the bigger fish. 
because they get really aggressive. They start coming right to the surface. You can almost probably put a floating fly on the surface and catch them. So it's pretty remarkable. Um, but it only lasts about two weeks a year. And then it's either fished out or the ice gets so thick in those shallows, you can no longer fish them. So it's a really unique fishery. Uh, it's a whole lot of fun, and it works. A lot of people are setting traps, fish traps, but um, we outfish the traps about 10 to 1 with jig and rods. And on a good day, you can get 10, 15 fish. And we don't keep them. We let them all go. Uh, we're not big fans of limiting out. And these are just, they call them tank scrubbers, so there's no big deal. Just If you want to keep them, keep them. If not, let them go. Have a good time with them. Super easy fishing. Everything works. And we prefer not to use lead, and we prefer to get them on a jig and on a trap. And a lot of fun. And I recommend if you can get on the ice early, you go out and do it. You can go on a, if you're on the Fish Nerds Facebook group, you'll see photos of us catching these fish. And it's so much fun. A lucky Fish Nerds hat doesn't hurt either. So we're running a contest right now in the Fish Nerds. We do our monthly call-in contest, and it usually lasts more than a month. This month's call-in contest, you're going to be put into a hat to win some cool effing swag. We're giving away a Fish Nerds beanie. We're giving away some Angle King lures from the Crappy Hippie from Glasswater Lead Free Lure Company. We are going to give away some cool jigs and some bunch of crap I got laying around my office. And if you want to win it, all you got to do is call the Fish Nerds hotline, 607-378-FISH, and tell us your fishy New Year's resolution. Uh, we started the contest last week. So far, we've gotten only three phone calls. Uh, and we th- appreciate those three phone calls, but I will not run this, uh, will not run this contest until I have at least 10. So get those calls in. Tell your friends. 607-378-FISH. Say your name. I'll give you an example. I'll say it like this. Beep, boop, doop, boop, doop, boop, doop. Ring, ring, ring. Hello. I'll, let me uh, see if I can match John King's uh, British accent. Hello. My name is Julia. And No, that's terrible. <laughs> What's his? It's more like Monty Python style, right? Well, what do you think is my New Year's resolution? I can't do it. John, you're the king of accents. I'm giving it up. But you would call in and you would say, hey, my name is Clay, and my fishy New Year's resolution is I plan on making a podcast every single week in 2019 and finding a way to make money at it. Uh, That is my Fish Nerds New Year's resolution. I live in New Hampshire, uh, and uh, that's the end. Whatever you want to say. You can plug your business if you're at a business, if you've got a guide service or... If you're an Instagram influencer, like our next guest, you can totally plug yourself. I don't care. I'll play it on the show, and we'll be happy to have you and chat about you. Uh, so that's hopefully by the end of December, you get those calls in, and you'll be entered to win our Fish Nerds prize package for January with your fishy New Year's resolution, 607-378-FISH. All right, so next up, the crappie hippie, John King, is with us. You're a tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, and I just love him. Uh, He's with us to chat about microfishing with Instagram fishy influencer at Isaac Fishing Corner. Isaac's Fishing Corner. Uh, He's a microfisher, and John King goes deep with microfishing. Hello, Fish Nerd Nation. This is Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas. And I have a really cool dude here with me tonight. I'm sitting down at the shores of the Ohio River in Evansville, Indiana, and with me is Isaac Morris from Isaac's Fishing Corner. Isaac, hello. Hey, John. How are you doing this evening? 
I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Well, we have not uh, punished the fish too badly, but it's just nice to be sitting out here with a fellow fish nerd. So we met because I'm following your feed, and I'm coming through here back from uh, seeing my daughter. And we decided to come down here on the Ohio River. Tell us where we're at. Yeah, we're down on uh, the Ohio River down in Evansville, Indiana. We're on the little plaza that runs through here on the boat ramp. So right here in the middle of town? Right in the middle of town. It's where the good fish are. All right. So I noticed on your feed you do a lot of urban angling. Is that um, is Evansville your only hangout or you go other places? Oh, I go, I go all over. Um, Evansville's the main place I fish, but we're the tri-state area, so I'll go to Kentucky, Illinois, anywhere within about a two-mile rate or a two-hour radius is kind of my home here. All right. Um, now, what I really want to talk about uh, is microfishing because I have some friends that are getting into it. Uh, I used to do it when I was a kid just because fishing in creeks and stuff was what I could walk to, what I could get at, and it was better than, than, than nothing. So... Um, for those who aren't familiar with microfishing, fill us in. Yeah, so microfishing, it's it's like no, normal angling, but you, you target fish that are conventionally smaller than the palm of your hand. Um, so anything from small bluegill all the way down to, like, my personal favorite are darters. Um, and so it's just an interesting way to go out and experience some of the biodiversity you won't see otherwise. Well, I noticed that most microfishers are really cut out for our show because you all seem to be... Uh, bunch of total geeks uh know the latin names uh and talk about the total total habitat picture uh uh true or false oh absolutely we are a bunch of nerds and we love it i what really draws me to your feed is that you have one of the best engagement levels of anybody you have about 1100 followers and your posts generally get between one and 300 likes that's pretty incredible did you know that thank you i'm very grateful for the people who follow Let's talk about microfishing a little bit. What are we talking about in terms of, like, what's a tough one to get? Oh, um, so I think darters in general are a very difficult species. They're very small. Um, They've got small mouths, live in really specific habitats usually. Um, So, like, when I first got into microfishing, the rainbow darter was one I wanted. And they're actually very common, but you have to know their drainage. You have to know where to go. And so when I started, I started fishing down in Evansville for them. And I was, like, an hour and a half away from any drainage that had them. So you have to dig down and read your books, figure out where they actually are, go up to them. And since then, I've, like, added orange throat darters, found a population of spot tail darters. It's just, I don't know. Just a second, just a second. Doc Martin, are you hearing this? Are you eating this up? I know you are. <laughs> no, so it's, it's, I guess it's to each person's idea what they like. But darters are really good introductory because they're really colorful. They photograph well, and, and they're very well uh, widespread. Awesome, awesome. Now let's talk about photography. Uh, we just got turned on to the uh, concept of a phototarium uh, in the last show, uh, or a few shows back. I don't know when Clay's going to use this particular piece, but anyway, tell us about the phototarium. Um, you made yours. Talk about it. Yeah, so I made a V-slot phototarium, or we call them photo tanks in the microfishing. Um, and so it's a V-slot, and then it has a clear, or so it's clear plexiglass, and it's shaped in a V, and then I have a third piece of plexiglass that's free-floating that I can move back and forth to kind of pin the fish to whatever side I want. Um, I like to photograph them and then, like, edit out the background so I have a piece that's white on one side so I can just edit all the white out initially. Cool, really cool. So, now, did you have to make your own because you can't find them, or do you know a place where you can buy them? Yeah, so there are places that sell them, um... Like for microfishing, a website, Tinkarabum, carries small ones. They're like five inches by two inches or so. 
and those were good. Um, I just got to the point where I, I was finding fish that I wanted to photograph that wouldn't fit in that. Um, so we have a, a sunfish here called a flyer, um, and they're more of a southern fish, and so we're right on the edge of their range. And so we get these beautiful yellow colors in them that they do exist in that color colors elsewhere, but ours are, I think, the prettiest. And so I wanted to photograph them, so I needed a tank big enough that I could do that. I see the flyer. I see the flyer. I see the diversity here. This was exciting. So what I want to talk about now is we're on the subject of microfishing. I'm going to just give you however many minutes you want. Tell us about your setup and, and tell us how to get it done for those of us that aren't familiar with microfishing. Okay. Uh, so right now, my microfishing setup, I'm using a loose cane pole. Uh, it's a real light pole, uh, really sensitive tip. And then I have a, I believe they're pronounced Tanago hook. Um, I order mine from Japan. They use those to fish for their own species of fish there. Um, it's a whole thing in their culture. Um, but essentially what it is, it's, it's roughly like a size 30 fly tying hook. Um, and then I'll put that on a... a size 30? Is that big? <laughs> no, that's a... Uh, it is comically small. Uh, I have to break... Can you see that? <laughs> I, I admit I will break out my reading glasses a lot of time for those. Uh, no, so I'll do that. And I'll put about one to two feet of leader in between that and the tip of my, my rod. Um, and then bait will usually use little pieces of worm. If you're really motivated, you can flip, like, some pieces of timber for, like, caddisfly larvae or whatever floats your boat on that. Um, but then just one little lead split shot, or I guess not lead split shot. I've moved away from that when I can. Um, but Don't be afraid just because I have a lead-free company. It's okay. It's okay. It's a, it's a process. No, but we do try. Um, I've switched over to a lot of fly tying leads, or that aren't leads, I guess, but different tins and things like that. Um, and then just put that above the hook about an inch or so. And then most of the fishing I do, like on the Ohio River, is going to be blind fishing. You'll just dip it down till the rod tip's just above the water. Wait to feel that little tap. you got to set the hook because they're just these real tiny hooks, so you're, you're really relying on that barb to do all of the work for you. Um, and then the only like special thing you should do is try to wet your hands since they're small fish, delicate, and then don't keep them out of the water too long either. But, I would imagine that you can't do that because they just don't have a lot of reserve, and then they're you can pretty much probably clean all the slime off one side with a finger. Oh, absolutely! Um, like there's silver sides that we fish for sometimes, and those are just notorious for if you're looking at them wrong, they'll just die. And so, like, if you're fishing for more sensitive species, it's worth keeping them in the water to get your pictures and anything before you let them go. And, of course, we've talked about your photo uh, terrarium or your photo tank, um, and that's an awesome way to do that as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And when I use that, especially I'll take that for, if I'm going to do Burke Silversides or something like that, I'll definitely use it. Um, and then for, like, darters or any of the, any species I want to keep out of the water for an extended period of time, it's a great way to do that without harming the fish. Well, I noticed tonight you've caught a number of tiny little fish here. Uh, your hands are always wet. Uh, they all seem to go back. Um, the one sweat off, swam off uh, free as a bird, but then got eaten by a bigger fish just as he went out of sight. So and sometimes, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyway, uh, that's fantastic. So tell me, you know, tell, let's get really geeked out and specific. Leader material, leader weight. I mean, are we talking spider webs here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I don't tie them myself usually. It got to the point where hooks that size, I just, I don't have the dexterity for that. So a lot of those will come pre-tied for you. Um, if you do want to do it, I was using fly fishing tippet that had like a 0.5 pound test strength. So, I mean, you're really low down, really fine diameter. Like you could use a, a, your hair if you wanted to. It's about the strength I'm looking for in the line. 
Wow. And you find if you, you is it more the bait won't uh, move correctly, the fish spook, you just get, get way more if you, if you just got to proportion it. Yeah, so the proportion is the really hard part. If you brush it and put too big of a piece on there, the fish will steal it more often, and then you have to do the whole process over again. So if you spend the time in the start to just put a very tiny, I don't like a pinhead size piece of bait on it, you'll actually end up saving more time later because the fish won't steal it each time you catch one. All righty, well, all righty. So we're talking a telescoping pole. Um, what's your main line? Oh, my main line is usually about four pound test, and then I'll put a leader on top of that if I need more length. Uh, sometimes I'll go down to two pound test. It really depends on your water clarity. The Ohio River, it's usually fairly stained, so I'm not worried about that. If I go up to a like, if I go up to Bloomington to a really clear body of water, then I'm going to use as thin of line as I can and as clear. Um, usually, I use monofilament is is my weapon of choice, but I know guys use braid. It doesn't it doesn't matter too much as long as your diameter is really fine. And you like mono, or are you ever used a fluorocarbon? Oh, I'm a mono kid. I've tried them. <laughs> I've tried them all. I just mono's where I like. Mono's what I like, too. I, I have yet to even even go for the fluorocarbon. Okay, so micro-fishing, urban fishing is your bag. I know you also get out and just do whatever we want to call it here, air quotes, uh, regular fishing. Um, but everybody's got a dream destination. Let's talk about yours. Oh, I'd love to get down to the Amazon someday. They have some of the coolest species of catfish down there. Anything outside the cat? I mean, you, you can't go there and not catch a piranha, I, I'd say. But... Are you going to microfish some there too, or is this all about the the monsters? Oh, I'll microfish anywhere I go. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So uh, that sounds like a quite a thing because I'm sure, you know, the, all the tributaries and so on have their distinct uh, biology and their distinct uh, uh, forage species, small species. Oh, absolutely. It's it is one of the most diverse places I've looked into. I I can't wait till the day I get to see it myself. So it's uh, it's definitely on the bucket list. Uh, that's awesome, man. That is absolutely awesome. Okay, Isaac, just just standard fish talk stuff. Uh, most disastrous day, best day ever. Which one you want to talk about first? Oh, most disastrous day is is a good one usually. Uh, I love fishing the Ohio River. I, I, I was a river rat growing up in high school. I came down here every night I could. Uh, loved the catfish. Would come out all night, soak baits for them. And I just remember that terrible noise of hearing my favorite rod just snap in half when I forgot to set my rod right. And you just see it bend over and just it pops. And that one I was lucky the line didn't snap because I was using heavy braid. And so I got this comically small little flat head in on it. It was, I don't know if something else grabbed the catfish or what, but it should not have broken that rod. And it was, oh, it was a nightmare. Were you with your buddies? Oh, no, I, I'd come down here by myself all the time. So it was just... Oh, so you couldn't blame anybody? You slammed it in the car door and didn't tell me. No, that one was all on me. I just, sometimes that happens, I think. All right, so your, your, your best day ever down here on the Ohio or, or anywhere else? Oh, I don't know. I think my best day, I think my best day would be up in, uh, I like to do road trips up to Bloomington, Indiana. And there is this body of water up there, Yellowwood. Uh, it's in the state forest up there. Beautiful body of water, had some great panfish, but I went there because there's a population of yellow perch in there which are fairly rare this far south. And I fished all day for them in the main lake, and I could not find them. And then at the end of the day, I was fishing the spillway there, and I kept seeing little darters show up there. And I ended up micro-fishing for, for them there, and it ended up being yellow perch, which actually share the same family. So the, the, uh, 
when you look at their body shape, it's very similar. So it was really cool to see kind of like that evolutionary chain, how it had progressed there. Coolio. Well, there you go. There you have it. Uh, a, a geek's dream come true. We didn't get a lot of fish down here tonight uh, by the river, but I did manage to catch about a four-inch uh, largemouth. Uh, we, we just lost a gar, we think, here uh, a minute ago. Um, you're telling me I could get a spotted bass, I could get a drum, I could get a blue cat, I could get a channel cat, I could get a gar, I could get all kinds of stuff, crappie. Uh, we were hoping for some maybe a, a stray striper or some whites might swim up in here. And I was really hoping, I didn't know, but I uh, skipjacks, which um, I see the big time catfishers go after uh, their quarry using cut up skipjack, but. If I started catching skipjack for bait, I don't know if I'd quit because I'm an ultralight guy. You 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 like to fish the skipjacks? Oh, the skipjacks are great. Uh, in the summer here, and like and toward the fall, you'll get them. They'll come up real shallow, chasing minnows, and man, they're just a blast. Uh, all right. So for people who aren't familiar, once again, tell us what a skipjack is. A uh, skipjack. It's people here call them skipjack shad. They're really a herring. They're just kind of long. They they look like long minnows, kind of like if you shrunk a tarpon down. Real small, like people in Tennessee will call them Tennessee tarpon. They're just a very fun acrobatic fish. All right, so what's the ticket to get one of those? Uh, we use uh, sabiki rigs a lot for them. Um, my personal favorite is I'll tie up a sabiki rig with like one sixty-fourth ounce jigs with little white curl tails. All right, so how many is on your sabiki? What's the, what's the legal thing around here? So legal limit in Indiana is three on a line. Um, so you can have up to three here. Um, but the Ohio River is under special regulations, so you can have unlimited rods now. So you have that trade-off. Wow. Fantastic, fantastic. Thanks, Crappie Hippie. Thanks, Isaac, for your time. We appreciate it. I do a lot of microfishing. Um, when when uh, Dave and I were on the quest to catch and eat every kind of freshwater fish in the state of New Hampshire, microfishing was how we did it. And I invented, I thought, a slice of river box. It was a photo box for taking photos of fish. Sounds like Isaac's in the same game uh, that I am. So a lot of fun playing around with tiny fishes. And one thing you find out when you microfish is you value each individual species more. So the bass guys love bass and trout guys love trout. Microfishers love all the fish. It's really a lot of fun. So if you haven't done it yet, go on and check it out. Have a good time with it. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. All right, so we're very excited about this next segment. This is going to go deep nerd, like next level nerd with uh, Doc Martin is here. Doc Martin is a college professor over at Emporia State University and a friend of the show. She's been uh, with us for, gosh, almost as long as we've been doing the show from almost the beginning. And she's still here. I can't believe it. And she's got babies and all the things happening. And she still makes time to talk to scientists about fish. And that's why we love her. Uh, so she's got with her tonight Dr. Mickey Tobler. He's a fish biologist and Kansas State professor. He joins Dr. Martin to tell us about his research and how to fish adapt to environments with a focus on how they live in extreme environments. Uh, if you're listening to this, uh, listen closely because there's a lot of good stuff, good science happening here. Uh, one of my favorite parts is when they branch off the discussion a little bit and get into the complicated issue of speciation, and which is really nerdy. Uh, and really complicated and a lot of fun. You can find uh, you can find Dr. Mickey Tobler's work at uh, sulfide-life.info or on Twitter at m-i-c-h-i-t-o-b-l-e. Links up in the show notes. So check him out. Enjoy his work and enjoy this interview with Doc Martin and Dr. Tobler. You look at how fish adapt to their environments, really focusing on species that have evolved to live in extreme environments. 
Um, so can you describe these extreme environments for us first? Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the original extreme environment that I started working in as a grad student um, is this really one particular cave in southern Mexico. It's called the Cueva de la Zubre. Um, and it's, it's a really neat place because it's kind of nestled in the south, in the southern uh, part of Mexico in, in kind of lush forests. And so in order to get there, you kind of have to hike through, through these really gorgeous places. And at some point, you'll just um, kind of sense this really nasty smell. And it turns out the Cueva de la Zubra, like the name insinuates, is actually a cave that is um, full of sulfur springs. And so these, this cave is not only pitch, pitch, pitch dark in, in the back at least, but it also has these springs that go into it that have high concentrations of hydrogen sulfide. And hydrogen sulfide is kind of the chemical that gives rotten eggs that nasty smell. And it's also incredibly toxic. So it can kill most animals um, in a matter of seconds or minutes, depending on the concentration. Um, yeah, sulfide springs do not only occur inside the cave, but also outside. And so we've been in the past not only been studying this one cave, but also the sulfide springs that occur in surface waters as well. Awesome. So when you're looking at these extreme uh, sulfide environments, um, there's fish that live there, apparently. Yeah, strangely so. Um, there's not very many things that live there because it's so toxic, right? Mm -hmm. um, actually, most of the springs that you go to, you will only find bacteria in them. Um, and sometimes uh, mosquito larvae, but that's about it. But then in, in some of the springs and in this one cave, yeah, there's there's fish in there. And they they live pretty happily in, in the toxic environments. They don't seem to be bothered by it. In fact, they occur there at incredibly high densities. So sometimes we have up to um, several hundred individuals per square meter. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a crazy place. So there's several different species um, that we have discovered to inhabit these environments. Um, in, in the cave and in the most of the springs um, in southern Mexico, we find different populations of this one species called the Atlantic molly or Pisilia mexicana. They're kind of, you know, similar to the mollies and the guppies you can buy at a pet store, right? And so these Atlantic mollies basically have colonized sulfide springs in different river, river drainages. So although it's the same species that has colonized these different springs, um, their different spring populations are really have evolved independent of one another. And then on top of the of the mollies that you find in a, a wide variety of sulfide springs, there's also other life-bearing fishes uh, like sawtails and mosquito fish that have also colonized some of the springs. So there's one spring there's that has uh, three uh, species in it. Um, that's the most species for its spring that we know. Um, and then most of the springs just have one species in it, usually a molly. Uh, but also sometimes, yeah, as I said, a, a sawtail or a mosquito fish. Interesting. And so you said that they evolved independently. Can you explain what, to the fans what that means? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it could be, right, that sulfate springs have been colonized one time um, and that, you know, that original colonizing population may have, uh, adapted, um, you know, or, or gained the ability to, to deal with the toxic condition 
And then from, from there, from that initial con uh, colonization, they might have hopped um, to the other sulfide springs um, in, in one way or another. And so that would mean that they have colonized once from the non-toxic to the toxic environments, and then all the other colonization basically happened from one toxic to the next toxic environment. But that's not how it happened, right? So the way you have to envision this is you have these kind of multiple rivers that um, come off the, out of the mountains from Guatemala in parallel. Um, and in each of these rivers in the upland, you have these sulfide springs. And so in each of these sulfide springs, there has been an, a, a separate uh, colonization events. There were separate individuals colonizing that spring so that even though they're the same species, they have been um, um, different individuals, essentially, they colonize those springs. And um, it turns out they have done so also on very different time scales. So in some river drainages, the springs have been colonized about 10,000 years ago. And in other, it has been much more recent. So how do you know how long something has been somewhere and colonized and has had that time to evolve? That is a really good question. Um, um, I, it's, it's almost like magic. <laughs> because um, my students are really good at this and I'm much less good at it. Uh, but essentially what we can do is we can go out to the different springs and different freshwater environments, right? Uh, and we can collect uh, uh, fin clips, tissues from the fish that we bring back to the laboratory. Um, and then we use uh, genome sequencing essentially um, to, to get um, um, the information, the genetic information from each population. And then we can essentially um, use uh, mathematical models uh, based on the genetic differences between populations uh, to figure out how much time it must have taken for, for this amount of, of um, genetic differences to accrue. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of um, basically looking deep into um, the genes of these fish that hold the clues of how long ago this has happened. And so when you're looking at the genes, what, what does that mean exactly? Like what are you looking for and how, how long do these changes take? You have to have some kind of idea of how long that change takes in order to know how long it's taken to evolve, right? Yeah, I'm kind of in a... In a, in a simplified matter, you can imagine you have a gene, right? And the genetic code is made up of four letters, A, T, G, and C, um, that uh, are repeating themselves all, all over um, uh, all the time, right? And so um, the way um, evolution happens is that some of these letters change. So instead of an A, T, T, G, you might have an ATTC, and we call that a mutation. Um, and so mutations uh, happen at, at a predictable frequency. So we know that you know the, uh, the, the protein that's just responsible for making these uh, uh, mutations um, essentially makes an error every so often. And so if we sequence the entire genome, all the A's, the T's, the G's, and the C's, right, we can essentially go in and count up how many genetic changes have occurred between populations. So if there's a lot of genetic changes, there has been a lot of time must have passed. If there's only a few, only little time has passed. And basically we go in and we 
quantified a number of genetic differences between the populations, and, and that allows us to estimate um, exactly how long it might have taken for, for those differences to, to appear. And would that work? And I, I'm just genuinely curious here. So I think of some of the fishes like the coelacanth that have been quote unquote unchanged for a really long time. Would it work with fish like that too? Absolutely. Um, because not all changes in your genes um, make a visible change. Um, so if they're not visible, uh, they're essentially blind uh, to evolution. So even, even though the coelacanth um, the coelacanths today, and by the way, I just saw a coelacanth last week when I was visiting the Field Museum, and it was awesome. Um, but awesome. Even, <laughs> even though um, the coelacanth of today looks very similar to coelacanths, you know, 60 or 70 million years ago, um, genetically, that's very unlikely to be true. So, um, of course, those letters, the A's, the T's, the G's, and the C's, right, they essentially just provide a code for making proteins, right? So, uh, essentially, um, what living organisms do uh, they, they, they translate this genetic code into proteins that ultimately make the cells and the bodies of the organisms. The thing is that there's some redundancy in that code. So an ATT letter will produce the same um, uh, amino acid as maybe an ATG letter combination. And so even though there's then no change in the protein, there's still a change in the genetic sequence. And that's what we can look at in order to quantify uh, the, the time it has taken uh, for, for species or populations to diverge. Very cool. And now another thing I think, um, I don't, I do not specialize in genetics, so I'm going to do my best here, um, is you're not looking at the entire genetic code, right? You're looking at specific regions, is that correct? Well, it depends on the study. For most of our species, we've actually sequenced the entire genetic code. Oh, wow. Um, so... And you're right, until recently, that was not really feasible, right? And biologists would just go in and look at the small subset of, of the genomes. So they might handpick, you know, a few dozen genes that they would um, sequence and figure out, you know, the letter combination that make up, the, up, up those genes. Um, but, you know, technology has advanced to the point nowadays that, that genome sequencing has become comparatively cheap. Um, so we can, uh, we're now in a position that we can actually sequence the entire genome, which gives us much more accurate information, uh, not only about when populations might, might have differentiated, but also how. So what parts of the genome are actually different between the toxic and the non-toxic uh, habitats? Awesome. So if you're looking at the toxic versus non-toxic habitats, what has changed? In these fish? Oh my god, so many things. Um, where, where to start? Um, so I've been studying these things for 15 years and literally almost everything we have looked at is different between fish from the toxic and the non-toxic environment, even though they're super closely related, right? So when I was a graduate student, I uh, was mostly interested in their morphology and was able to show that their morphology is different. Um, fish um, in the toxic springs, they, they stay much smaller. Um, they grow these uh, incredibly giant heads 
which turns out uh, makes space for giant gills, which they need to um, get oxygen in the toxic environment because the environment is not only toxic, it almost has no oxygen in it. So breathing in there is really, really hard. Um, on top of that, they have differences in their physiology. And what we've learned, for example, through the genome sequencing is that fish in the toxic environments have evolved the ability to actually detoxify the hydrogen sulfide. So they're not merely tolerating it, but their bodies are con continuously turning that sulfide into other um, chemical forms that are not toxic anymore. Um, <laughs> and then the reason sulfide is toxic is it, because it me messes with your mitochondria. Now the mitochondria, those are these tiny little um, components of your cells that are responsible for making the energy for the cells. They're called the, the, the energy uh, uh, plant of the cell, right? Um, and essentially, hydrogen sulfide goes in there and switches off these mitochondria. And so the organism runs out of energy and it dies. And so the other thing that uh, fish in the toxic environment have evolved to do is basically to, to unlink that switch. So in, in, the, in the fish of the toxic uh, habitats, even when hydrogen sulfide is present, it cannot turn off that switch anymore. And the mitochondria essentially keep operating, they keep producing energy, even though there's uh, the toxic chemical is present. So there's a whole slew of things that have changed um, from, from the morphology down to the physiology and the biochemistry of these fish that allows them to live in the toxic places. Excellent. And that actually brings me to a, a question from a fan. Um, so Rob Kruger wants to know, uh, in these systems, how long does it take to make some of these changes? So how long does it take to... Uh, for the fish to have like no eyes or for the large head or for the changes in physiology? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it turns out it takes not very long at all. Uh, so we have um, one population that we've been studying for about um, um, 10, 12 years now where the sulfide spring is relatively small and it's very, very close um, to the non-toxic habitats. And in, in, um, in that population, our genomic analysis have indicated that the, the split between toxic and non-toxic has happened about 500 years ago. Um, so that is extremely recent, right? Yeah, I would have um, guessed a lot longer, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. and, and the oldest, um, the oldest, uh, you know, uh, divergence that we know of is about 10,000 years ago, um, which is also, uh, you know, in, in evolutionary terms, right? Uh, it's a blink of, a, of the eye, right? Mm -hmm. It has all happened since the last ice age, essentially. Um, and, and, and that's incredibly rapid. So, you know, people always think that it takes for a long time uh, for new species to evolve, but in fact, it can happen really, really rapidly, much faster than we think. Well, I think some of that might be due to what most maybe non-scientists view as a long time, right? <laughs> right, right. It's, it's I, guess, I guess 10,000 years can, can be pretty long, but if you think <laughs> about, you know, the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago, then, right. you know, 10,000 years is like nothing. 
Right. So <laughs> it's, it's all relative. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so I was just wondering, another question here is where we, you mentioned there's different species. So there's the molly or some mosquito fish and things that are living in there. Um, why is it those fish? Is it because that's what was there? Are there other local fishes that could have colonized these areas and didn't for some reason? That, oh, that's another great question. And, and there's not really a good answer to that. Um, we can mostly just speculate about that. There's definitely a, a ton of other fish species uh, just adjacent to these springs that potentially could swim um, into the springs. You know, these springs are not isolated. So all these springs, they flow out into a bigger river, and there's no sorts of barriers that pre prevent any fish um, from crossing that barrier, yet they don't. Um, and so one reason why it might be the mollies and the mosquito fish and the sorttails is because these are all life bearers. And so one advantage might be that they can essentially shield their offspring from the toxic environment during development. And that's particularly relevant because, um, you know, the, as I said, the springs are not only toxic, but they also lack oxygen. So if you're an egg layer and, and lay uh, maybe your eggs in the substrate of the toxic springs, uh, your eggs would simply uh, suffocate in that anoxic mud, right? So being a life bearer might have helped. Yeah, and so just for some, uh, just in case we've <clears throat> forgotten the different types of reproductive strategies of fishes. So, yeah, they are live bearers. So the eggs are retained inside the body, and they actually kind of give birth to living young that are free swimming already. And That's right. They look like tiny copies of the adults, right? Yeah, and most people, when we think about fish and how they spawn, we think of them as laying eggs, right? So this is a, a, maybe a more unique style. That's absolutely right. The other particular thing about life bearers is, like the mollies and the mosquito fish, they, they often occur in kind of, you know, what we consider nasty environments, right? You will find them in a drying ditch um, or in a, in a swamp that might also have low oxygen. And so maybe it's these types of fish that already kind of living in, in kind of edge habitat, marginal habitats where most other fish wouldn't necessarily be able to survive. Maybe that has kind of given them given them an edge to actually colonize these toxic springs. Yeah, and that actually brings us to, to another fan question. So um, this is great. You're hitting all the questions here. <laughs> uh, so uh, Rich Collins wanted to know, uh, he's intrigued about uh, rates of cancer, um, particularly in humans versus fish. So how is it, you touched a little bit about this when you talked about physiology, but how is it that fish can live and thrive in heavily polluted water and simply not suffer the same health issues as humans. And he says, whenever I see toxic water, I also see fish. So one simple answer to that might be that, you know, the fish die before the cancer can grow. Mm. So if you, if you think about it, you know, you have to be exposed to these uh, cancer-causing agents for prolonged periods of time, right? And un until basically those, you know, detrimental mutations can happen and the cancer can grow. And if you think about the lifespan of a mosquito fish, it's, you know, maybe six to 12 months or so. So very few of these small-bodied fish probably live for a prolonged time. So that, that might be the simple reason that 
why we why we don't see cancer. But um, you know, the alternative view is like maybe these fish all do have cancer, we just really haven't investigated that. So, for example, in our sulfide spring, we have some springs that where we have incredibly high incidences of black spots in um, in the in the toxic environments, and so these black spots are essentially um, uh, enlarged pigment cells uh, that are actually cancer precursors. And I have recently spoken to a colleague that actually study, studies skin cancer formation in fish, um, and he suspects that they are actually experiencing higher rates of cancer in the sulfitic environment. So they might not quite be as well adapted as we think. Oh, that's but we really don't know much about it because it hasn't been, hasn't been systematically investigated. That's a great. Yeah, that's awesome. It's interesting. I didn't know that there even was black spots on these fish. That's cool. Um, that's all. all good. Oh, okay. Um, so, um, when you mentioned that these fish are evolving, they're evolving independently. Um, are these new species, are these cave species actually described as a new species compared to the ones that are not in the cave? Um, so, the cave one uh, in particular is not. Um, that's considered a population um, of the Atlantic molly. Although um, Robert Rush Miller, who was a famous fish biologist um, that described many, many species in, um, in the Americas, especially in Mexico and Central America, he actually had an unpublished manuscript in the 1950s to describe this cave form. Um, some of the surface sulfide spring fish, um, they're described as distinct species. So there's, for example, uh, the sulfur molly called Pisilia sulfuraria, which is highly endemic to only two springs that um, are about the size of a couple of football fields. So some are described, some aren't. Now, are they species? <laughs> well, it depends on what you think a species is, right? If you, yeah, think so, a spe sorry. If you think a species is just something that looks different uh, and uh, inhabits a different environment, well, then they're certainly species, right? Um, but biologists uh, have huge disagreements about what a species really is and how we can, you know, grapple with that. And so, yeah, I don't know whether these are distinct species or not. Right, and that brings up a point that's, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I get really excited. So the species <laughs> concept is something that in science is really controversial but most people think a species is a species, and that's not the case at all. Well, well yeah, that's that's right because it, it's it's kind of blurry, right? I mean, in, in reality, you, you know, when new species evolve, this is not an instantaneous process, right? Mm -hmm. But rather. Um, populations split, and over time, they get more and more and more distinct. They're less and less able to interpret with one another, but this is a gradual process, and it's actually also a process that might be reversed. So, in some populations, you might see divergence, which might suggest that they're evolving into different species, but then maybe something in the environment changes and they come back together and they merge again, right? Mm -hmm. 
So it's a gradual process and not an instantaneous um, um, or not an instantaneous process. And as humans, of course, we have to put everything into boxes, right? <laughs> that's that's what we do to make sense of the world. We we have a giant um, drawer case full of boxes, and we're trying to categorize nature into these different boxes. And very often, it's possible, right? Um, it's very clear um, that the largemouth bass belongs into a different box than the smallmouth bass, for example. Um, that the distinction there is, is not very different. But in other cases, the distinction is difficult because the, the populations that are along that gradient of differentiation on the way of maybe becoming different species, but not quite there yet. Um, and, and that's why it's kind of problematic to stick them into boxes. And depending on how you look at the problem, you would say, yeah, of course these are different species. I stick them in a different box. And somebody else might come and like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not so much interested in how these fish look, but maybe more how they're made up genetically. And it turns out there's very few genetic differences, and so maybe they wouldn't put them in different boxes. And so it's um, often a judgment call and often a matter of hot debate between different scientists that um, illuminate problems from different angles. And so can I... Okay, I like to ask this question to graduate students that are getting ready to defend their thesis. <laughs> I was wondering if I could tell the uh, question to the fans, and I would love to hear your thought process on it while we're here, if that's all right. Sure. Okay, so since we're talking about speciation and what is and isn't a species, or is it the same species? So we have humans on Earth. And so let's say that somewhere in the Andromeda galaxy, Far, far away, um, another life form evolves. And there's been no contact between Andromeda Galaxy and the Milky Way Galaxy ever. Yep. One day, a spaceship from the Andromeda Galaxy comes to Earth, and an organism walks out of the spaceship and looks exactly like a human. Is it the same species? Well, I would argue probably not, because you cannot look, you cannot judge a book by its cover, right? Mm -hmm. So we, in, in evolutionary biology, we call that convergent evolution. Mm -hmm. It's when very different lineages um, evolve to look very similar because they live in similar environments. But it's not because they're closely related or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So um, if any one of your listeners has... Um, um, cichlids in their fish tanks, right? Cichlids are famous for this, mm -hmm. um, where uh, cichlids in Lake Malawi in Africa and Lake Tanganyika, they're completely unrelated, but if you start comparing different species, um, they look strikingly similar to one another. Uh, and that's, that's because there's only, you know, a finite number of niches in an ecosystem, right? Uh, basically a finite number that species can make a living. And then there's only a finite, finite number of solutions of how they can do that, uh, that type of living well. So, you know, if you're colonizing um, a niche where you have to eat snails, well, inevitably those, those species will evolve strong jaws because that's the way to crack the snails, right? And so we see this repeated evolution um, 
happening, but that doesn't mean because they're looking similar that they're the same species. They're, it simply means that, you know, they basically evolution has driven them to look very similar, presumably because they're adapting to the same environmental conditions. Right, yeah, so yeah, if there's a good way to solve a problem, multiple species are gonna find that out because not only are they solving the same problem, but they're also constrained by the genetics, right? They can't- Absolutely, absolutely. It's not like um, evolution only, evolution solves problems by tweaking with what is available, right? With existing structures. Mm -hmm. And um, just because a new trait might be beneficial, it doesn't mean it just evolves, right? right? Yeah. That's right, actually, so. you're actually touching on like a really big debate in biology that had lingered, you know, for decades. Um, because there, there was a, a, um, a biologist named Stephen Jay Gould, and he yeah. was very famous for essentially um, pro- uh, proposing that, you know, as li- life uh, life's, uh, life diversified, um, it's random chance had a very big role in evolution. And he always said, you know, if we could replay the tape of life 1,000 times, right, um, then we would never get the same outcome and, and um, the, same, the, same evolu- uh, the same species would never evolve twice. So if we had to replay life on Earth uh, a second time, then probably we wouldn't get to humans. But then there's this other school of thought, uh, primarily led by a guy named Conway Morris. He wrote a really cool book that's called Life Solutions, Lonely, uh, Predictable Humans in a Lonely Universe, or something like that. And, and he argued that it's the constraints that make evolution predictable. It's because there's only certain ways um, um, you know, life can evolve because there's all these constraints based on our genetics, but also um, other parts of the environment, that the same uh, solutions inevitably come up over and over and over again. And so that's kind of a um, kind of cool contrasting view of, uh, views of, of, of the same problem. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting <laughs> um, So I only have one more quick question for you. So you've been doing uh, this research for a really long time. Well, not maybe not really. I'm about 15 years, as you said. So what do you, what do you think is just the coolest and most interesting thing that either you found or about this system? What's just something that makes you go wow every time? Well, I'll tell you what. It feeds directly back to the question whether evolution is actually predictable or not, mm-hmm. because what we have found in our system is that it is. Because no matter whether we look at the sortails or the mosquito fish or the mollies, they have independently found the ability to detoxify the hydrogen sulfide in exactly the same way. And they also independently found that switch, modified that switch that turns on and off the mitochondria when hydrogen sulfide is, is present. So even though these are very different species that have colonized sulfide springs in very different places, right? They have tweaked um, their genes in very similar and sometimes the same way to essentially be able to live in that environment. And that blows my mind. (laughs) That is really awesome. (laughs) 
So was there one of your papers specifically where you, where you discovered that? Um, <laughs> it's not published yet, actually. <laughs> I'm, dis I'm disclosing unpublished information here. Um, this is a paper we've been working on for the past four or five years, and that hopefully will come out sometimes next year. Well, thank you so much. All right, well, thank you so much, Dr. Tobler, for coming on, and we will maybe we'll see you again sometime. <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, so that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds. You know, forget this. I think uh, I want. I do want to thank. I do want to thank Dr. Mickey Tober for coming on. I want to thank the Crappy Hippie. I want to thank Isaac's Fishing Corner and Doc Martin for being part of this. I uh, really appreciate everyone being, you know, just coming on and being part of this nerdy crew. But let's let let's let Isaac and uh, and the Crappy Hippie end the show for us and some crazy guitar. I don't even know where that came from. But maybe. Uh, Maybe crappy hippie, you can fill me in later. All right. Good night. You've listened Bye. to a bunch of fish nerds when you could have been fishing. That's right. And we'd like to thank our friends and family for putting up with us all the antics that us fish nerds pull. And remember, always follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. Swim against the current every chance you get. All right, fish nerds, it's time for some fish in the news. I wasn't going to do it, but it's breaking. Fish in the news might be the most important story the rest of 2019, so I must do it. Here is fish in the news. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. Nice to have Diana's bath salts making that music for us, but this requires something a little sexier. Hang on a second while I pull up a file. Wants to get more fish in the world. It's up to you and me, girl. Come on. There's only one way we're gonna get more fish in this world. It's up to you and me, girl. Let's spawn. Oh, yeah. So the headline from ScienceAlert.com. <laughs> this is so dumb. Uh, Thousands of penis fish have washed up on a California beach. After an influx of dark and stormy weather, residents in California's Bay Area awoke to find their local beach awash with what appeared to be hundreds and hundreds of pulsating pink penises. I had no idea what they might be. It went on for two miles, resident David Ford told Vice. I walked for another half an hour, and they were scattered everywhere. Dicks scattered all over the beach. There were seagulls lined up uh, at the beach the whole way, having eaten so much dick they <laughs> they could barely stand. Baffled by what he, what he was seeing on Drake's beach, Ford reached out to a biologist at Bay Nature, who explained that, yes, while these pink and swollen logs totally look like a bunch of dicks, they are, in fact, a strange species of marine worm known as the fat innkeeper, or more colloquially known, the penis fish. This is for real, you guys. Yes, the physical design of that fat innkeeper worm has some explaining to do, wrote biologist Ivan Parr. But the fat innkeeper is 
perfectly shaped for a life spent underground. It just so happens that the perfect shape also looks like the most prominent part of the external male genitalia with a pink tip and everything. Found along the west coast of Northern America, it is approximately 25 centimeter long, 10 inch long dick builds its home in sand or mud, burrowing into a nice safe U-shaped tunnel with the edges that look sort of like a chimney. <laughs> when the tide is in, the worm slides up to, to the chimney of its burrow, mm, up the chimney of its burrow, and exudes a sticky mucus net from a ring of glands. Sometimes you can see the mucus nets looking like decaying jellyfish draped around a burrow's entrance. The worm digs deeper into its burrow. This creature secretes a slimy net which slides all the way from the edges to its mouth. Using three layers of muscle, the worm then pumps a bunch of water into the hole, sucking in plankton, bacteria, and other yummies into its net before slurping it all back in like a shot. The name the innkeeper comes from all the freeloading worms, crabs, goby, and shrimp who enter the burrow and eat along with it. But building your house out of sand has its cost. Strong storms like El Nino will tear them apart, hence a beach full of dicks. That's the news, you guys. And now you can see why I had to have this perfect, perfect, sexy, sexy music for it. And <clears throat> I hope you're enjoying this uh, sexy music interlude. Uh, this actually was submitted to us by a listener. Reed Sutter sent it down to us. Because in January, we're going to start a new Sexy Fish sex segment called Sexy Fish. And this is the theme music for it. So let us know what you think about that. Fish Nerds News out. Fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets. Fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the hell of it. Fry it in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds. It's a podcast.